0: I'm Salma Karashi. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talkshop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neuroscience Research Podcast. It's October eighth, twenty twenty, and today we welcome Michael Hasselmo, who is William Fairfield Warren Professor of Psychological and Brain Sciences and the Director of the Center for Systems Neuroscience at Boston University. Hi, Mike. Hello. Mike's research takes an interdisciplinary and multi-scale approach to memory, from neuromodulation and firing patterns of single neurons and networks to computational systems, neuroscience, and behavior. Um, His current research focuses on the neural mechanisms of spatial navigation and episodic memory, specifically how space and time are represented in the hippocampus and related cortical structures. So around the table today, or well, in the Zoom today, as you can see, we've got a group of physiologist modelers, uh, fellow navigation specialists, Isabel Mutzi. Hi, Isabel. Hello. And Francesco Savelli. Hi, Francesco. Hi. And of course, we've got good old Charlie Wilson. Hi, Charlie. Hello.
1: Um,
0: So Mike's work in the memory field is so fundamental and pervasive. I think it's it's most appropriate to point our listeners uh, to his 2011 book, *How We Remember: Brain Mechanisms of Episodic Memory*, for. A uh, rich account of how the brain records and integrates the spatial and temporal features and experience as, as trajectories on which to connect meaningful objects and events for later retrieval. We also, um, I also want to point you guys to the fact that we have in our archive a 2016 conversation with the late great Howard Eichenbaum, who first introduced us to multifunctional space and time representations in place and grid cells. And that work uh, that he discussed in that podcast, which you can find on our archive, was a long standing collaboration with the Hasselma group. Um, so for today's discussion, uh, I think a cool starting point is just is, is how biophysical and network models have supplied the parts list for understanding how the brain codes space and solves navigation. So Mike, it seems like your models have been particularly prescient in, in driving discovery. So before we knew that there were um, cells in the entorhinal cortex that represented a time dimension, the models I guess told us that they would be there. Your uh, another example is your, is your model for how time might be represented in a network predicted exponential time decay cells. So also now more recently, I guess models predicted uh, or models have predicted that boundary sensitive representations are necessary for coordinate transformations between egocentric and allocentric space, and you found those cells in the retrosplenial um, cortex. So as, a, as a, just that's a lot of data that I hope we get to bearing out a bit of but um, just in in a very general way taking a step back as a biologist modeler because first and foremost you you are a biologist asking biological questions these are not toy models can you say something about how much the models drive the experiments and how much the experiments for example you know uh, the behavior work that you're doing on context for example how much those maybe um, drive the models and, and your take on some of that
2: yeah so I really it's nice that you're highlighting the models because I am very interested in the models, and I always kind of am operating with working models in my mind when I'm thinking about new experiments and and really trying to understand how the system works um, and my overall goal is to have some kind of um comprehensive model of the mechanisms of episodic memory but even of broader cognitive processes that are involved in regulating when to store information and you know, when to use it for planning and so on. So, so I really am coming from that perspective and it's very exciting uh, you know, when models make predictions that are then borne out with experimental data uh, and you know I well you mentioned already the one about the transformation from egocentric to allocentric representations I think Neil Burgess deserves a lot of credit for that very exciting model because his earlier component predicted the allocentric boundary cells and then it you know this this model then went on to predict the egocentric boundary cells that have come out just in the last couple of years so that really is you know very exciting to to see those sorts of predictions um, bear out in the field. And uh, the time cell, you know, you could even say that Tolving's definition of episodic memory in a way predicted the need for time cells. But uh, I think the, you know, the grid cell model um, also kind of generated this possible um, function of, mapping dimensions other than space, um, namely time. So, so really there's a lot of potential for the models to guide the experimental work.
1: you say something about um, how to make models that make predictions like that? Because a lot of people have the notion that nothing can be in your model that you didn't put there. So if you didn't know it existed it wouldn't be there, but somehow um somehow you can put things in your model that you didn't
2: know you needed or yeah and i think it comes out from the process of, of you know completing the model so a lot of people want to work with sort of verbal hypotheses and i think a lot of neuroscientists to do that they have an internal hypothesis that's kind of a word-based hypothesis but the process of actually programming a model and putting it together puts a lot of extra demands on you to, to make things fit together. And I think that's really where a lot of the new ideas come from. So, you know, for instance, the, um, the work by Neil Burgess, he was trying to model how play cells changed when you move the, the barriers in the environment. And I think it was the process of trying to build that model for that really one experiment that forced him to come up with the idea of these allocentric, you know, boundary vector cells, and then the egocentric uh, boundary vector cells. Uh, and I, you know, when I was trying to um, uh, address um, the role of the theta rhythm and kind of the potentials encoding and retrieval dynamics, I was, you know, I was trying to model the kind of reversal, uh, you know, learning of reversal and, the, you know, could. Um, when addressing what the criteria were for behavior in the context of theta rhythm oscillations, you know I could come up with what the phase relationships would need to be and that actually made finer grain predictions that you know still haven't been fully tested about the potential firing phases and the the phase relationships on a finer grain basis.
0: you mentioned velocity there and um so it's interesting, there's also this, this idea that velocity is coded in, in two different ways, I guess in the, is it in the retrosplenial? There's a theta rhythmicity, which you found, and then there's- That the, was, in, that was in there's, an entorhinal cortex. In entorhinal, sorry. And, um, and then there's a traditional linear rate, uh, firing rate also. So when you find something and you've got, so you've got your part list, and you found the velocity input, and then you've got this sort of bifurcation of signals. As a modeler what what happens then? I mean, do you go back to robotics? do you go back to engineering? do you I mean where or is that where the model s- ceases to be and you sort of keep looking for more um, connectivity maybe maybe biological realities or- yeah
2: I mean in this case, you know this is sort of different um, ways of approaching the same problem. so you know you have the the representation the need for representing velocity and then you realize that there's different ways of of representing it with the firing rate changes or with the 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 theta rhythmicity um, and i have to say you know I've, i'm on grants with robotics components to them but roboticists are not making these kind of biological distinctions yet maybe somewhere down the line they will but they just you know they'll go for the kind of the quick and easy algorithmic representation Um, and um, you know as soon as it works then they're not worried about implementing it maybe if they had to put it into um, neuromorphic you know circuits then they'd have to to start dealing with whether it's represented with oscillations or you know some kind of analog signal Um, but uh, but really it comes down to kind of starting to match the data and you know then you can get into specific analyses of the experimental data to see which which mechanism uh, works best and you find yourself often getting even more fine-grained representations. Um, I think I was talking with somebody today about the fact that, you know, you really can represent velocity in terms of the influence of optic flow as well. And that could be either firing rate or, you know, rhythmicity, but it could also have other dimensions pertaining to the way that the optic flow is represented. So so you really start to kind of almost have like a branching of the models uh, into more and more experimental options.
3: Yes, ask you a question. I think that perhaps in the field of navigation and memory, one of the biggest challenges, and your lab has been an exception because you have been addressing to some extent what I am going to ask, but is that um, we are trying to interpret how our sensory system is integrated in the phenotypic firing that we see in these different cell types that we observe in the medial temporal lobe and how they generate the different rhythms that happen in vivo. But at the same time, we need to understand the intrinsic firing properties of the cells that are part of those circuits. And that has to be done in vitro, which presents a challenge. So your lab has been different because you have addressed both questions, but how can you integrate both types of information because without that integration is going to be almost impossible to understand how you give rise to a grid cell for example if you don't understand the intrinsic properties of those cells in terms of ion channels and how they fire and at the same time without the in vivo component is very difficult so how do you integrate all that in the models yeah
2: and that's a i mean that's a central question for the entire field, not just for me. And I've, you know, I've wrestled with these problems. You know, we've done slice physiology, we've done biophysical modeling, we've done in vivo recording, we've done modeling of the in vivo data. And I have to say, I find it frustrating that there's still different levels of modeling that are quite distinct from each other. So you can, you know, and this is partly in my own work as, you know, as well as in the field as a whole, there are the, biophysically detailed models that can address the spiking dynamics of the memory potential of a single neuron and the currents and conductances that are contributing to that. And then there's these functional level models that address the in vivo data and the behavior, which are to, to date almost always more abstract and bridging between those levels is extremely difficult. I did that early on with biophysical models of attractor, you know, well, associated memory networks um, not really tractor networks, but with you know biophysically detailed models. And we modeled the phenomenal like persistent spiking and um, match enhancement, things like that in biophysically detailed models. But to, to take a biophysically detailed model and map it up to the in vivo data is very challenging. And we've come close. Eric Zilly did this with me in a model in 2010. And Dan Bush did a model with Neil Burgess in 2014 that at least had spiking dynamics for a, a grid cell model. Um, but both of those models were still um, relatively abstract spiking, you know, rather than full biophysically detailed models. So this is something that that it's a tremendously complicated process to get working. And I'd like to see more people doing it. But in, if anything, I have the feeling there's fewer people trying to make the, <laughs> the mapping.
3: I was thinking about exactly that today when you presented the data about uh the projections from the septum to the entorhinal cortex and the new results in which i mean you showed that you know if you lesion the septum people have shown that memories is um, disrupted and then you also show that the um the project eliminating the projections the grid cells disappear and then you show that more recently you have been looking at cell specificity and you if I recall correctly you said the kavaergic input appears to be the one that mediates the grid cell characteristics but I was remembering there is a paper, a recent paper by Zomogi that says that it's a particular type of GABAergic cell that projects to the, it's a type of parvalbumin cell, because apparently there are many parvalbumin cells that project, but these are specific parvalbumin cells that have a particular fighting pattern, they fight in bursts and they have these characteristics, so I was thinking whether it's a more general problem in the field that those that specialize in looking at the intrinsic properties of how the cells fire, maybe there is not enough crosstalk with all the people that do the in vivo work to put together the big picture of how you know the brain is working in a particular region.
2: Yeah, I agree there should be more more interaction. Um, you know, and Sammoji' has been great in the sense that he does intracellular recording in behaving animals now. You know, getting the theta rhythm dynamics, and he can look at the spiking of the neurons relative to the the network theta rhythm oscillations. Um, and Klausberger, as well as doing that, so that's exciting. Um, and they're starting to make those links. But I have to admit, you know, most of the people doing extracellular unit recording are not thinking in those terms. They're not trying to connect to the somoji data or the the, you know, the intrinsic properties, you know, a lot of them aren't thinking in terms of uh, spike frequency accommodation at the single cell level or, or other intrinsic properties, you know, we've done work on the H current. And we had a whole project about how the H current could be involved in grid cell generation. Um, And that was, you know, exciting. At at one point, I thought that would be kind of a simple, clear story. Um, But it ended up as often happens being more complex than that. Uh, But it is a great opportunity when you you can make those connections.
4: I think one difficulty in bridging the two worlds, especially at the modeling level, is that um, there is some sort of mismatch between the complexity or rather the um, detail of information that you have. So you might make a very biophysically detailed model of the neuron, which is great with all the dendritic compartments and ionic currents and everything but then you don't know enough about um you know how the patterns of inputs you know say you know if you're modeling i don't know grid cells to place cells or or whatever you know you don't know okay, how many inputs do you really get or you know how many cells are really with these characteristics or not because you know, there, there are estimates in the field, but they're very rough and they're subject to sampling bias. You know, as somebody who's done those kind of experiments, you know, there's there's, there's always an in- inevitable degree of sampling bias. So you end up with a model that has, it's kind of lopsided in a way that is like very detailed in a way, but then that detail doesn't match other details that you need. And so you start questioning, well, maybe I'll make a model that's more abstract and hopefully I can capture some kind of principle and so on and so forth. So it's very important, but it's also very difficult for their reason, I believe.
2: Um, yeah, you laid that out really well, you know, that kind of developed, it describes exactly the evolutional, evolutionary process that a lot of people go through when they're starting to do modeling, especially if they start at the biophysical model and want to go to the more behavioral and, and you know, in vivo kind of level that they'll start with uh, you know some standard biophysical model and then they try to put it together into a population and link it up into a behaviorally functioning circuit and immediately they run into that question how many of these connections do we have from this region to the other region and you know even within a region how many what's the the percentage connectivity um you know how yeah you know how is the function associated with the those percentages of connectivity and yeah you end up guessing at so many of the parameters that you feel like it's all hypothetical but at the same time the process is useful for people to go through because they realize it it kind of you know opens their eyes to how much is not known you know it's stuff that people doing just unit recording don't even kind of think about oh well there's this these problems of how the different cell types are connected and what their intrinsic properties are all the things that you have to guess at when you're putting together the models. So so on a certain level, it's it's useful for making you realize, you know, just the huge number of questions. I actually uh, wrote a paper recently called the unexplored space of neural models that was trying to address this specifically because my sense is that people tend to cluster into particular types of models like the attractor dynamic model, which is very popular or else the feed forward kind of deep learning trained, you know, gradient descent trained models. And if you try to think about the whole space of possible models, those are only two really restricted areas of this parameter space. And there's just this humongous domain of unexplored types of models that you could create if you actually took into account all the possible intrinsic conductances and all the possible patterns of connectivity and, you know, I'm thinking that maybe we should try to explain what hasn't been explored. I had a map of, you know, from, um, I think that, you know, right when Magellan was doing his circumnavigation of the world, showing what was known of the world and how the whole Western coast of the, you know, Americas was completely unexplored, but at least they knew what was unexplored because they had longitude and latitude. They had some way of quantifying what was explored and what was not explored. And if we could even start by having some you know, description of the dimensions of neural function and figure out how much of the space is unexplored and then maybe, you know, send people out to explore these different domains of modeling space instead of just lumping everybody, lumping into the attractor dynamic space or the feed forward gradient descent space. I think that could be a way of approaching the the issue.
4: I, I agree, and and there is even more than that. Sometimes even the terminology becomes in a sort of Orwellian way limiting because, for example, one thing I always thought so there is there was this dichotomy um, uh, between um, you know attractor models and oscillatory models, which you know very well because yeah. <laughs> a lot. But for example, you know, what people intend as a attractor model is a very narrow implementation of the concept, the very general concept of attractor in physics, right? You know, so it's, it's like a firing rate um, idea of this network in which each point has a firing rate. And so you have a vector of firing rates for the population of cells, and that's your state space. And then the attractor is a point in that state space or is a line. But that doesn't have to be like that. I mean, you can have an attractor dynamics in an oscillatory space, for example, you know, and it's called synchrony, you know, it's a, you have a network of cells that, you know, converge to the synchronization. You can think about that as an attractor dynamics. Yeah. So sometimes even like, you know, uh, just even the terminology itself, I feel like sometimes it's kind of constraining And limiting the way that people are thinking about it. So that goes, you know, to what you're saying.
2: Yeah, it's true. I mean, I should have said fixed point attractor models because, yeah, Yeah. because there's all sorts of limit cycle attractor models. And and frankly, they're in the unexplored domain.
4: (laughs) But, uh, yeah. Uh, But, yeah, I mean, in general, I agree with what you're saying. I think you put it very well. the model, so coming from computer science, you know, we are saying programming is understanding, and you know, they're it's so true. That's the idea, it's like, we all have verbal models in our mind, otherwise we wouldn't be doing research. The problem is that you have this verbal model that works great in your mind, and then you try to implement it, and all sorts of things come out that you weren't thinking about, and it fails in all sorts of ways, But I just feel like, you know, that's when you're really usually learning something, at least as you said, you learn what you don't know. And occasionally the model actually points you to some kind of insight because it behaves in a way that you weren't expecting, you know, it were, you know, you just had, you, th- you think you thought you had it all figured out in your mind and then you did, you know, you actually didn't. And that's actually uh, going back to what Charlie was saying. Yeah, a lot of people think, well, you put it in a model. Now there's this joke saying, you know, a model is doomed to succeed, right? <laughs> and 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 it's and it's true in a way, and everybody's done modeling knows that. At the same time, no, that's not true. I mean, oftentimes what you think you're gonna make succeed when you just implement it just fails, and you weren't expecting that it failed. And why does it fail? Oh, okay, you know, I figured something new, and so it's it's a it's actually an extremely useful exercise to do, um, to do modeling, um, for this reason.
2: Yeah. And I've encountered that, you know, many times when I think that I have this intuition that something's going to work in a certain way. And then I try to program it and I realize, Oh no. Yeah. I was forgetting such and such feature that prevents it from working that way. So, so I have found that useful. Uh, and I know, you know, I do know this phenomena that, you know, a lot of times, well, frankly, you know, what Charlie was saying about the, you know, the, modeling addressing the existing data part of that is that even even being able to design a model that addresses existing data is a a hard process. And so people often will start with the goal of, you know, making a general theory that's going to make predictions and then You know, after many years of work, all that they've managed to do is to account for a subset of the data. Um, And so I would be excited, even if models could account for all of the existing data, that would be just linking together, for instance, the cellular level, intracellular conductances and the network level in vivo data. If we had models that could just address the existing data, that would be a pretty amazing achievement. Um, But it is, you know, The ultimate goal of models is predictions, and I I know that you know for instance in physics everybody's criticizing string theory because it only is addressing existing data, not making new predictions, and that's you know the real gold standard of models is when they generate new predictions. But that's out there in neuroscience. You know the the Hebb rule was floating around for many years before you know the well, even before Bliss and Lomo, you know, before LTP was found, and certainly before the Wigstrom and Gustafsson and McNaughton and so on, showing these Hebbian properties of long-term potentiation. So that was a success of modeling, even though it doesn't maybe get emphasized as much as it could be. Um, And there are these other examples like the boundary boundary vector cells. I mean, that's a, you know, sort of an unsung achievement, you know, because that's quite an amazing prediction that Turned out to be <laughs> supported much, much later by experimental data.
4: Yeah.
1: So I know this is a, a little off topic, but one of the things that strikes me about your field is what's happening with the, basically with the place cells and grid cells literature. So it started out, as I remember it, there were place cells and they were in the hippocampus. And then and, and they have all these interesting properties. Maybe they tell us where we are. And then the question was, where do they get that information that kind of grew out to interrinal cortex, which was a natural place, being kind of the immediate upstream place for the hippocampus? And now listening to you, I get in the impression that it this system is growing. It's gonna soon have taken over the brain. So it's not just the interrinal cortex, but there's uh, the the septal nuclei, and there's now cortical regions and basal ganglia regions that are all part of this system. So is this a, a sort of success story of like chasing the place cell and gradually constructing the entire the entire system of the forebrain? And uh, yeah, is this going to
2: work? Well, I mean, it's it seems to be progressing, at least, you know, so it seems like science needs these little seeds of really hard and fast facts that are highly reproducible, you know, so that was kind of the appeal of it was that the play cell was such a robust phenomena that other people could go in and, and really robustly reproduce that phenomena and build from it so even though people would often criticize place cells they'll say well why study them they're so far from the sensory periphery so you don't know what's causing them you know so that's a kind of a standard you know argument for people working in primary cortical areas that you shouldn't work on place cells but it's exciting you know and it really is just because within the the relatively constrained foraging task that it started with at least it was highly reproducible and therefore lots of groups could go in and and see the phenomena and then link it to other things. Um, and it's kind of, it's 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 actually kind of amazing how long it took, you know, the, the interval between the 1971, you know, place, the first play cell publication and then the um, 2005 grid cell publication, that's a pretty amazingly long interval, especially considering that people knew that enterional pr- cortex was providing the input and they looked there, you know, so, um, so Quirk was looking in entorhinal cortex specifically for inputs to grid cells, and you know other people were looking many years ago, and and it really wasn't. It's interesting because it's kind of an interesting story because the 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 problem was that they were all recording in ventral areas of entorhinal cortex that were projecting more to ventral areas of hippocampus, and in fact you know Greg Quirk has recordings and Pat Sharp have recordings that both probably were grid cells that were just really large scale grid cells. And it wasn't until the crucial thing was that Menno Witter said, well, let's look in the region of entorhinal cortex that projects to the dorsal hippocampus where those, you know, play cells were, the, the small place field, play cells were being shown and that's what the Mosers, that was what prompted the Mosers to go and record in the dorsal regions of the antirenal cortex, which, and part of the reasons that the people weren't recording there was it was right under a big, you know, um, sinus, you know, filled with blood and underneath the kind of the ridge of the skull. So it was hard to get at. But once they actually went and looked at there, that's when they saw the grid cells that had the smaller, more narrowly spaced firing fields. Um, and it's kind of you know, it's kind of sad that that could have been done. The technology was available to do that 30 years earlier, so people could have discovered grid cells with the technology that was available in the 1970s. They just didn't happen to, to you know, follow the anatomical connections into the dorsal enterhinal. Um, so, you know, so I guess it's 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 true that this work is bridging out, but it's kind of surprising how slowly it, it's happened for bridging out from it. <laughs>
1: You mentioned- so in those days, lots of people knew neuroanatomy. Maybe they disregarded it, but they knew it. Now, very few people even know any neuroanatomy. Is that gonna slow down our progress?
2: Yeah, that's a scary thought. I mean, for a while people were talking about the, you know, this kind of um, reduction in number of people working on neuroanatomy. And it is scary because people do need to know the connections and I would argue against naming areas Things like you know fusiform face area or occipital place area because that's giving this kind of functional naming that's you know kind of ignoring the anatomy and I think people have to stick with the anatomy. Um, though somebody recently just said that there's been this kind of new I don't know rebirth of anatomy you know maybe with the sort of the fluorescence tracing and so on. So hopefully it's going to have a resurgence. <laughs> you mentioned oh,
0: I'm sorry, go ahead. No, you're good. I'll come back to it. Go ahead.
3: Oh, so, are you sure? OK. So following up a little bit on what Charlie said and the evolution of thought, I mean, one. It, this is a very general question, and I want to know your thoughts. Like, you know, we and the models we discussed try to explain grid cells or how, um, boundary vector cells or whatever, but um, I was thinking more in terms of episodic memory. What you think the function of grid cells and place cells is because we know the medial temporal law is really important to form representations of new contexts but based on the what we were talking today re, in relation to my own data we know that when animals become extremely familiar with an environment and there are lesion studies that prove that um, then the medial temporal lobe is not really necessary to navigate context in which you have complete flam- familiarity. Mm-hmm. So w- what do you think the role of, the, of these cells is in terms of encoding episodic memories? I have some ideas, but I want to know your viewpoint because you're an expert on this.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's important to point that out. You know, sometimes people forget that, you know, patient HM could, could navigate familiar environments. You know, he didn't, um, he couldn't do unfamiliar, but he could find his way back to where he had lived before he had the surgery. So, um, so, so it really does suggest that the entorhinal cortex and hippocampus are specifically important for forming representations and plotting trajectories in novel environments. And in my book, I laid out how that could happen. You know, how the, you know, I have a circuit between the grid cells. In this case, grid cells driving play cells, just the way Francesco was modeling it. And then the play cells would be um, driving uh, speed modulated direction cells. And I was assuming movement direction cells that then could, you know, drive the grid cells in a, in a loop. And you could actually have a full trajectory getting um, encoded. And the, the crucial encoding was actually between the play cells and the speed modulated direction cells in that model. Um, uh, But but the the circuitry there, the grid cells and play cells and, you know, speed modulated direction cells in that case are providing a, a mechanism where synaptic modification can then store these trajectories relatively rapidly. Um, And that's still kind of my, my framework and we used it actually in the, you know, Airdom and Hasmo papers, we actually have the same kind of framework for planning trajectories through the environment. So in the Morris water maze, being able to learn a, a platform location and then go to any arbitrary location in the space along the perimeter of the tank and be able to plot a trajectory to that location. So to have this extra flexibility of not only remembering trajectories, but plotting new trajectories through space. So that's the, you know, that's what I've modeled so far, but there's probably additional nuances, you know, uh, particularly with regard to the fact that these these systems are malleable based on context, you know, so we know place cells aren't the only thing. There's the what we call splitter cells and um, all sorts of other, you know, changes in the representations that can take place. So the malleability is is important beyond what I was able to model in the, you know, in the models in my book.
3: So essentially, because normally episodic memories happen in contexts that we are extremely familiar with, like in our own house, right, we can make cookies and we have to remember the recipe and how long we cook the cookies or whatever. So you think that the function of these cells is to provide the trajectory and time where these events get encoded, even in familiar contexts.
2: Yeah, and that's that's an important question. And you know, I haven't modeled it as much as I should. I tend to focus on completely new circumstances so that you don't have to worry about how the the learning is interacting with pre existing representations. That's um, but, good
3: really troubled me because I think that most of our episodic memories don't happen in novel in novel contexts you are trying to figure out where you are but the episodic memories happening in scenarios where we are very familiar with the spatial coordinates it's just that we have to encode all these events that happen in the familiar context mm-hmm. so
2: Well, I would, I mean, I would argue that they're happening in both. I think, you know, the episodic memories that you form in a new city are an important element for probably building up some map over time that, you know, involves consolidation processes. Um, But that is more what, what, you know, I tend to model. And you're right that you are a lot of episodic memories are, you know, the importance of being able to distinguish between what you said to somebody you know like when you come into the office in the morning and you say hi to you know a friend of yours and then you know when you see them 10 minutes later not to say hi to them again or you know not to greet them as if you just saw them whereas the day before you know when you first saw them you know you'd have to say hi and then not you know so so it's really a tough mental task to discriminate between different episodes in a highly familiar environment in fact that's what the delayed spatial alternation and delayed non-matched sample tasks that's partly I think why they're so sensitive to hippocampal lesions, is that they're really challenging the animal in a highly familiar environment to remember what it did most recently. So that is a very important question. And and maybe, you know, in some ways, well, the you know, the ability to set up new contextual representations in the hippocampus is probably Um, a very important characteristic beyond beyond the play cell representation. There's this flexibility. And like we showed with the data, you have these splitter cells kind of popping up, you know, several of them each day. And maybe that's an important part of the process that you're not locking yourself into a given representation indefinitely, but new cells are coming up and forming new contextual representations every single day so that you can form these new episodic memories.
3: Well, that's what is suggested by the fear conditioning and reconsolidation theories, right? That each time that you retrieve the information, the context changes, and then you reencode because time passes by. So essentially, the the time variable is not going to be the same, and that changes your perception of what...
2: Of the context. But yeah. And sorry. this is I just want to mention this is what Mark Howard was really starting with before he got into the modeling of the time cells he had this temporal context model which was doing exactly that you know where the mm-hmm. retrieval of memories was being merged with new memories to form a new context that mer- that would evolve over time.
0: So, in, this, I know, in, so. In, this, <laughs> in listening to you guys talk about that it almost seems like time is um, is almost a, it's just a, a, a trick, right? Because the time representations that we have here, they're useful in one sense in in building space in building our sense of space, and then later they become useful in building context. So there really isn't a sense of, of incremental time that allows us to position things. I mean, well, how do you, how do we think about that? Because there's many different aspects to time. And all of these yeah. things are sort of tools that build something else that's other than A sense of time.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So absolute, yeah. So it's, it's not clear that absolute time is being represented in neural circuits, you know, and that's where the temporal context model was exciting in the sense that it was representing time by the evolution of the process of context coming in. And this interesting, he developed that model partly to address the fact that if you have a serial position curve in episodic memory tests in humans, that if you give subjects a bunch of words at two second intervals, they'll have a certain curve, you know, for 10 words. And if you give, you know, a bunch of words, 10 words at 10 minute intervals, you get a similar curve of the retrieval of those. And so it seems like the, the system has this capability of, in a sense, mapping time on multiple different scales with similar characteristics. And, and maybe the evolution of time, the subjective evolution of time is dependent on the number of new pieces of information you're getting per unit time which does of course cause all sorts of subjective effects when you're in a, a new environment versus in a familiar environment or even going to a new place once versus you know going to the same place again you'll often say oh that seemed really different in terms of the time duration that it took so um, and there's other ways of distorting it so you know it's been shown that the uh, um Modulating dopamine cells will change the subjective perception of time for for animals and uh, and that's consistent with, you know, some drug effects that have been described in you know, behavioral tests with, you know, um, amphetamines, for example. So So time is time is not, you know, it's it's not clear that there's any code of absolute time.
4: Now, I would like to um raise an issue uh, which I don't think it, it gets um, talked enough in our field and um, in these studies, usually when we talked about um, encoding of time, usually, I mean, I divide the studies about roughly in a couple of different uh, paradigms. One is, okay, uh, you have an animal that has a delay, there is a delay epoch, in one experiment. And so you start measuring what cells do from the beginning of that delay. And so that's repeatable. And you can make multiple trials and check that the cells are doing the same thing. But then together with this, which I think is a very nice paradigm, it's kind of gets conflated with this idea that uh, maybe drift or spontaneous remapping and hippocampus is somehow an encoding of time which could very well be the case, but it's a very different conceptual. it's very different. And I argue that in terms of classic neurophysiology, you cannot even talk about a neurocorrelate of time in the latter case, because the idea of having a neurocorrelate is that you have you know, a stimulus or a situation, an event, and you measure the cell response, and then you have to repeat that. Uh, multiple times and show some kind of tuning of the cells or some selectivity. The latter case, you just don't, know, you can't repeat time. You know, in the first case, you know, you have a delay, so, um, paradigm, so you can repeat that many times. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's lapse time from a starting point that is experimentally defined. But in the second case, I think it's very vague. So there is so many things that drift in life, you know, in biology, And all of a sudden, of course, they correlate with time. And now, you know, you 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 know, so unless you cannot talk about, I think, a neural correlate of time in that case, and people do, and um, I think I have a problem with that. But um, I think the proof is going to be, and somehow figuring out a readout mechanism that used that information, then you're going to have to prove that that system was purposefully encoding time. Uh, That's very important and I don't think it's discussed enough.
2: Yeah no it's not. I mean I have to say you know really there's a little bit of a mismatch in the way I present things in the sense that I start talking about episodic memory and coding of time for episodic memory which is this long-term representation where no episode is ever happening again. You're just trying to retrieve it later Um, and so that's almost by definition impossible to study unless you can You know exactly measure the millions of neurons involved in reactivating the the prior episodic memory Um, and so yeah we're making this kind of oversimplification looking at tasks where the rat, rat is running for 16 seconds and you see the time cells reading out but in between i mean i'd like to mention in between we have found something which is it's very hard experimentally to look at a delay that's longer than 16 seconds but in our data with the imaging you know, the, the work that Will Mao did, and actually some of our other imaging data, we at least have the same cells on different days. And so now we can look at not only what happens within a 16 second interval multiple times within a day, but you can look at the sequence of trials, trial one, trial two, trial three, trial four, trial five, and see of an evolution over those. And then the next day, we actually have evidence that there is a correlation structure in which trial one is more similar to trial two than it is to three four five and so the correlation structure is changing across trials so at least on a minute time scale we do now have evidence that there's a a similar evolution on each day it's still not episodic memory because it's not one event on one day it's how are you forming a temporal structure for, oh, this is, this must be trial three, you know, whether you're encountering it on day one or day four. Um, But at least it does give evidence for, you know, a longer time scale representation.
1: Yeah, I I agree. You you know, the time is a hard one for experiments. I think you know, experimenters should say, time may change me, but I can't trace
2: time. <laughs> exactly.
0: Speaking of time. Oh, sorry. Think, sorry, do you have do anyone else?
4: Um, yeah, I don't know how much time we have, but uh, about 10 minutes. Oh, okay. So, I mean, one thing I wanted to uh, point out is um, you know in the be- the beauty of uh, you know Mike's work I mean it's not just Mike you know as he mentioned Neil Burgess and the O'Keeffe group but you know, I think Mike did so much work also and in, in this is when I st- try to summarize it to you know people not in the field is like I think it's, it's just a way of turning oscillations in time into oscillations in space I mean, if you really look at the essence of these models that, you know, he talked about, that's what they do, you know, with this trick of velocity modulation and everything. And and I think that's I wanna say that's fascinating because you know, when we talk about oscillations, you know, they're so omnipresent, ubiquitous in nature, in biology. I think that's even um regrettable that it's not very well represented, for example, in undergraduate curriculum. I mean you just get uh, you have this book, Art Winfrey, The Geometry of Biological Time. I mean, it's just amazing. You know how you have oscillations everywhere. And in the brain, you know, you, you might have this, it's oscillations in time that get turned into a representation of space, which is a cognitive function. And so in a way, this idea of time and space, I mean, you know, they're, they're really, it's, it's hard to disentangle them when you, and I think, you know Mike's work is really really good at showing that in in both experimental and computational um, work
2: well thanks yeah I, I've been excited about the you know the use of oscillations and phase coding for years and I still think it hasn't fully realized its potential you know I mean when theta phase precession was discovered that you know I was talking with Francesco about this earlier I think that's one of the most important discoveries in our, our field because it's such robust evidence and reproducible evidence for, you know, temporal coding um, and so robustly, you know, coding the spatial locations. And, you know, you can, in addition, see how that could be expanded to other dimensions. You know, so I had one paper where I I said, well, you know, it's not only, it could it could be used for not only describing the location of the agent itself, but also the agent's perception of the location of other objects in the environment, or even you know more abstract concepts like how much has a balloon been inflated, or you know how much has the color of a stimulus changed. You know, um, so so there's many dimensions that could be coded by phase coding, and I keep thinking that you know if we just look closer and closer at, at more and more you know, phases relative to different frequencies, maybe we could find the, you know, code for, you know, much more sophisticated codes for a much more broad variety of stimuli in the environment. So I think there's a lot of potential in that domain.
0: We have lots of trainees listening. So good. (laughs) taken. Thank you for joining us. uh, Mike Hasselmo. Uh, This has been great. Thank you everyone. This has been neuroscientist talk shop. Thanks guys. Thanks very
2: much. Great Good conversation.
0: Yeah.